Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from talking points and partisan politics. Uh, instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help frame policy debates and the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs a gamut on policy subjects, from local municipal concerns to state and even national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchik. With me is co-host Rich Larson. Rich, today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to discuss the important topic of what to know before you go, the answers to questions about death, grief, and funerals. Our guest is Mr. Scott Mueller. Scott is a licensed funeral director and a second-generation owner of Mueller Memorial, which has two locations, one in St. Paul and one in White Bear Lake. Scott is also an author. He wrote the book titled, What to Know Before You Go, an insider's answers to the most commonly asked questions about death, grief, and funerals. Scott was kind enough to join us in studio this morning. Scott Mueller, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thanks, guys. It's a real privilege to be here, and it's nice to be in Northfield. It's, uh, it's, it's nice that you would make the, uh, the trip down to Northfield. Oh, from, I uh, love from, it. From it was St. a beautiful Paul. drive. That's great. Um, Scott, we're going to just get right to the interview. I, I want to say first, uh, funeral directors, I have uh, a, a string of funeral, funeral directors in my family. I know this to be a noble profession. Um, what was your inspiration for a career as a funeral professional? How long have you been a funeral, funeral director, and what type of education is required to do, okay. to do what you do? So that's pretty uh, – there are three questions there, so let me <laughs> kind of uh, go back to uh, how I chose to get into it. So I'm second generation. My mom and dad owned the funeral home before uh, – and they started it. They actually started it. Uh, my mom and dad, very Catholic people, had nine kids, and I'm right in the middle of that brood. And so the same opportunity presented itself to each of my other siblings, but nobody wanted to do it. I think, I think it's because they didn't want to work that hard. But, uh, <laughs> so I'm number five in the lineup and, uh, and said yes to it and was very pleased that I did. Uh, now you asked me about uh, what kind of education is required. So the education that's required is generally um, taken care of with a bachelor's degree with two years of of uh, concentrated studies in mortuary science. Mm -hmm. In this market, there is a mortuary science school at the University of Minnesota, but there's also one in Des Moines that does uh, this kind of study by remote learning, mm -hmm. and that's becoming a lot more popular, too. Mm -hmm. For undergrad work, I mean, I would imagine you can just you could get, you get, a, get your bachelor's degree, but... W is, is, is chemistry a good uh, undergrad it, or psychology perhaps? Is, uh, what, are, what are good undergrad degrees if you're heading into this? Well, mortuary science is a really good degree to have, even if you don't okay. stay in the profession, because it is a great, it is a great uh, mixture of the soft sciences and the hard sciences. Oh, okay. So the psychology, 
chemistry, well, not really physiology, but anatomy. But I like the physiology because I don't think you can learn anatomy without figuring out how it works and why it does. Um, So by the time you're done, you've got a very, very good education. So people can come to this profession from just about any other profession as long as they have a calling for it. And a lot of people, that's what that's what kind of calls at them. They say, hey, I've I've always had this this desire and how can I get into it? So what's the difference? Is there a difference between a funeral director and a mortician? Well, there used to be in this state. So in this state, funeral director and mortician are the same thing. Um, however, there used to be a license for a funeral director, which was a lesser license, mm-hmm. and a mortician, which was the complete license. The mortician's license would allow you to embalm and care for mm-hmm. and care for the deceased. A funeral director allowed you to do some of the paperwork and sit with a family and meet with them. But that was done away with a long time ago. I suspect it might come back now that embalming is not... Uh, performed as often as it used to be. This is news to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. We're not embalming people anymore. Well, we're not embalming as many people. Okay. Certainly people are dying. But uh, embalming, when I got into the business, and that was in 1980, I got my f- license. When I got into the business, 97% of the people were embalmed and prepared for an open casket mm-hmm. visitation. Mm-hmm. People would come, they'd go to a church, they'd go to a cemetery. Now, it is probably 75% of the people are cremated and may have a connection to a church. Of that 75% that are cremated, maybe only 25% are embalmed so that they can have the body present for the service. Otherwise, the body is cremated, the ashes are present for a service. And these days... Uh, a service doesn't necessarily mean a religious one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm, that's exactly well. Yeah, that's that's how I would like to go. I don't necessarily need to have a funeral. I'm a f- former bartender. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. Well, then, then you'd like oh, what we did at our at, at our White Bear location about um, in 2015. Um, I was part of a study, national study that outsiders came in and told us what baby boomers were telling us what they didn't like about the funeral business mm-hmm. and i was i was uh attending the reveal in milwaukee and all sorts of funeral directors and allied professionals around the table and it was all information none of us wanted to hear but it doesn't make it less valid because right. we didn't want to hear it right. because it said hey your business is changing you better listen to your customer mm-hmm. and so I drove back. During that drive back, I thought, I'm going to invest in my White Bear Lo- Lake location. We added on there, and we put in a bar. <laughs> and it was the first bar in Minnesota and likely the first bar in the United States. Now, it isn't. Did you actually get a liquor license? No, we okay. didn't. All right. So the safe way to do it is right. to do it through a caterer's, uh, yes. a caterer's license. Absolutely. Um, but that really changed uh, the mood of people coming. Mm-hmm. And so when people came in there, you could almost read their body language where it says, we're going to go in, we're going to sign the book, we're going to say hi, and we're going to get the hell out. Right, right. Uh, now, when people come in and they say, would you like a drink? And they, you mean a, 
a drink drink <laughs> yes. yeah. and go see Joe at the bar yeah. and uh, and people end up staying there just like they used to do years yeah. ago and they engage in the stories about the person and with the family and I, I, I that's that to me that's the that's what I want like I put my urn on the corner of the bar where I used to work <laughs> and everyone tell funny stories about me and and, and you know Tell, tell all the stories, right? Everyone laugh and have a good time and, and cry a little bit and then go home. It is, uh, it still is how people want to be remembered. You know, we want to mm-hmm. uh, lean into that as much as we can. What we're really not good at, what I'm not good at and our firm is not good at, is a person comes into us and says, just cremate this yeah. person and no service, no nothing. Yeah. And... I don't think that's the right thing to do. Everybody's got a story to tell. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got people that are going to miss them. And uh, there's there's a need for people to get together. And there was nothing that that proved that more than the pandemic. Right. What's What's the saying that the funerals are not necessarily for the dead; they're for the living. No, we all we all need that. That's correct. We all need that closure. Yep. Right. So anyway, I'm stealing your thunder. No, that's all right. Scott, when I was young, this goes back to the 70s and 80s, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, oldest of nine children. Oh, man. Okay, I was an altar boy as well. <laughs> yep. So you remember part of our responsibilities were working funerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were formal, solemn affairs, each structured similarly. You had the wake, the mass with the eulogy, and a prayer for eternal life, a luncheon, and lastly, a burial at a cemetery. Recently, I was... I was at a celebration of life, which you just described. Music, food, drinks, videos, and pictures of happiness and life. It was, in effect, a party at a center for celebratory life events, like graduations and weddings. We're going to continue to talk about how funerals have changed over the years throughout our conversation. But let's go back to a few few of the language type words that you use when it comes to funerals and full burial service in your words what is a funeral and why do we have them i guess well funerals really changed in my in the time that i've been licensed so i'm a little bit older than you and i go back to before vatican ii when funerals and funeral masses were very very solemn very dark very black uh, black candles, black vestments. The priest would stand with his back to the back to people, and then after Vatican II, that changed things quite a bit. But then, as baby boomers were born and expressed themselves, they have said, "Hey, I want to have something different. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have. I want to stand apart from tradition." And that seems to be the whole thing. That if you can give me a way that uh, that I think is going to be fun for my friends or beneficial for my friends, then I'm going to do that. Now, let's not forget that in order to have a funeral, you need to have a death. And a death is going to make some people sad. And it should. We should lead that kind of life where people miss us and they really don't, uh, and they really think, oh my gosh, this is, life's going to be different without this person. That should be the thought. And there should be a little thought, too, about our own mortality mm-hmm. in that. It's hard to go to a funeral without thinking, oh, I just talked to him two days ago. Yeah. And then you think, well, what about me type of thing? Right. 
And so it does get you thinking, Joe, like you said, where you uh, you think, I, I kind of want to have a party. I want to have something like this. Now, the funeral you described probably didn't. The one thing that you left out of there was any kind of clergy. And so the baby boomers have become the first generation that have really become de-churched. Mm. And I don't say unchurched, but they, they were churched at one time, and they become de-churched because a lot of that traditional approach to religion is not something that baby boomers really are looking for now. So some of the, some of the uh, biggest churches now are the ones that are non-denominational, and that take a real different approach towards religion and almost look at entertainment as one of their top uh, their top things to do. And so I, that isn't lost on me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking that part of our role, too, is to make sure that people that come in are also entertained, that they're comfortable, that they're well hydrated, if that's with a drink or with its lemonade or water, and so we can encourage them to stick around and tell the story. Can you explain for our listeners what a visitation or wake is and why you think it is an important ritual? So a wake is really an old word. Um, a wake goes back to the days when you did this in the home mm-hmm. and you had the body brought to the parlor, the parlor in the house, yep. and you... And you sat for the wake, which meant that you were there all night long. Um, And it was carryover from that time. A visitation is a little bit more uh, recent, but even that's being replaced with the word reception or gathering of friends or celebration of life, that type of thing. It is always important when there's a major life event for everybody to get together and to share their joy or to share their misery with other people who care for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the pandemic, when there was a period there where we could only lead 10 people into our business at a time, and most families exceeded 10 people, we weren't able to get a, a significant amount of time for people to even, even families to be able to come together and to be able to express themselves. Mm-hmm. So regardless of whether it is a happy moment a graduation or a birthday or something like that or a major illness or a death coming together and being together and offering comfort to somebody else is built into our dna yeah it's just part of us you can't take that away what would you say the person that is reluctant to go to the visitation wake funeral just because they're uncomfortable but in the book you talk about the importance of being present. Could you comment on that? Everybody's had this situation where they've had a friend or an acquaintance where they kind of ask themselves, well, should I go to this visitation or celebration? Should I go? Am I really that close? And if you've asked that question, you've already answered it. Hmm. You should go. Um, Because it's not only good for the family, but it's good for you too. Hmm. When you walk out of there, you're going to walk out of there very satisfied for separating with some of your time and changing your schedule to bow to somebody else's pain. Because I think the thing about a death is that it is almost always unexpected, 
or even if it is expected, it's untimely, and it makes people change what they're doing, drop their schedule, change their schedule, and lean into somebody else and to be of service to somebody else. How is, how is it, is it important for, to see someone in death before you can move on yourself to the grieving process? Um, I believe it is. Yeah. Now I'm an expert in this. Right. And so I don't think it's really a belief. It's really, I think it's really true that it is important to see this person even if you cared for them at home and families will come in and I say, well, would you like to see them one more time before the cremation takes place? Right. No, you know, we cared for them. Uh, I want to remember them as they were. And I always tell people, I said, that was about the struggle. That was about the last moments on this earth. That's a different sensation than coming in and being able to say goodbye. Mm. And so when people come in and they stand there for that purpose, that weight, that gravity is really felt. And most people, in fact, of all the people that I've encouraged to do this, only one family was not happy about it. But all the rest were because it is something that, although it's uncomfortable and you don't look forward to it, once you do it, you actually feel better because the brain paints, your imagination paints a picture that is worse than what reality is. You know, my dad used to talk with me about this. He, he, uh, um, he didn't enjoy open casket funerals, but he said they, they were really important to him because, you know, you walk in and, 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 and there's the body and people say, oh, don't they look so peaceful? No, no, they don't. They look dead. Now, this is thirty some years ago. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. Hey, they still that, look dead. <laughs> <laughs> but they they do. They look dead. They're not breathing. They're not moving. They're not acknowledging anything. They are dead, and that is. I mean, that is closure. That is that is the opportunity to say, "All right, goodbye." There it is. And it's it's it. it he, he he would talk about it a lot. Well, he a couple things like about it, that. But, but it, it was important to him. A couple things about that, Rich, is that what you describe and what Joe describes are two different things. Saying goodbye and gathering together to say goodbye to that person before they either cremated or buried is one thing. Mm-hmm. Having an open casket is a different thing. Is that really necessary these days? I'm not sure that it is. I'm really not sure that it is. The important thing for friends and extended family is to gather. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing. Mm -hmm. Because there is something, there is uh, an endorphin rush that comes from being around other people. Why would you go to a concert? A CD or a a digital Mm -hmm. Spotify uh, Mm -hmm. listening is Mm -hmm. a lot better, a lot better quality than if you go to a concert. Uh, but going to a concert, you feel the energy of the rest of the crowd. And it's not as good. It's not as good a quality. But you come out of there, and you are very excited because you all had this shared experience. And that's the same same thing I I equate it to here. Okay. A casket is how the the, the body is presented and transported. Um, But, I mean, that can be... That's a lot of different things. I, if I wanted to be buried, well, 
Okay, you hear the stories about people want to get buried in their car or whatever, right? But but if I wanted to be buried in a pine box that I designed for myself, could I do that? Bring it in. All right. Hmm. So the Federal Trade Commission. What about my car? uh, Well, a car gets to be a little bit more problematic. But the Federal Trade Commission does regulate us. And from the early 80s, they passed a rule that said that if people want to provide their own casket and buy it someplace else, Mm -hmm. they didn't anticipate people making it uh, or the Internet at that time and and the availability of product that way. Um, They said, you have to accept it. And so if you want to do that, we can do that as long as it's structurally sound. Okay. So it doesn't put our reputation at risk. Sure. Fine with me. But a casket really represents about 20% of the of the deaths that are taking place out there. Mm-hmm. So the other 80% are either taking place in a cremation container mm-hmm. which could be made out of cardboard or laminated cardboard or other combustible uh, items or it could be a casket that we call as a ceremonial casket but a lot of people call a rental casket okay. which has an insert in it and allows sure. us to be able to have that visitation or bring the body to the service mm-hmm. and then be able to take that uh be able to take that uh insert out with the body present and go right to the crematory. Okay. All right. Now, what about a vault which is not necessarily a a, a concept I've ever completely understood yeah. i mean what is the purpose of a vault and are vaults are vaults required okay so a vault is like a uh, uh you go home with your car mm-hmm. and you park your car in the garage sure. it protects your car but but the real purpose of a vault or an outside burial container is to maintain the weight of the earth above it in old cemeteries you will see that there will be uneven space the gravestones may be canted a little bit. And the reason that the, that the cemetery requires a vault, not the state, it's not a state law, but the cemetery will require it, is to make it easy for grounds maintenance over the years. Because a casket, regardless of what you pick out, how much you spend, is not strong enough to withstand the weight of the earth over the years that it's in the ground. It's not designed to. No. No. And so you can, you, can, you can satisfy the minimum with just a concrete liner that isn't sealed, or you can, you can uh, choose a sealed burial vault and do the minimum there or go up to the ridiculous, if you wish. <laughs> yeah. Do people still, are there still mausoleums? I mean, there are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are. And people can buy personal mausoleums and things like that. They're quite expensive. I but, would imagine. Uh, and it's very uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, Scott, uh, an aspect of your book that I really like is when you explain origins and histories related to funerals. In your book, What to Know Before You Go, you mentioned when and why embalming began. Can you explain when embalming first started, what it is, uh, why it's done? You've already told us that it's not required and you, you've already told us that you're doing it less than you used to. But if not embalming, what is the other option? I imagine cooling, perhaps. But well, give us a little history. And yeah. Then, yeah. Embalming is not required in most situations. Okay. The state says that we must embalm or cremate a body within 72 hours of the death. 
And that's moving pretty fast a lot of times. Is that right? I yeah. didn't realize that there were, I had no idea there was that kind of. Oh, it's pretty heavily regulated because I'm, I'm licensed by the Department of Health to protect the public's health. Mm-hmm. And I start by protecting my health first. Yeah. And so um, we, we have a 72-hour law. Now, some funeral homes, like ours, have an exemption to that because we have a cooler. Oh. Now, a lot of people think that all funeral homes do have a cooler, but we don't. Um, so because we have a cooler, we're able to go out six days okay. to accomplish that burial or cremation without the need for embalming. Okay. Now, embalming itself started in the Civil War, at the Civil War. I, I should take that back. Embalming really started back in Egypt. <laughs> back, <laughs> if you really want to go far right, back, right. it started in Egypt and with the pharaohs and all that type of thing. But modern-day embalming. Um, started in the Civil War. And the reason why is because you had so many troops brought into one area that were so far away from home. And back then, a distance away from home is a lot different than the distance now. And they wanted to be able to get these boys back home for a funeral service. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, there might be ice that was involved that would be in the parlor. That Mm -hmm. person would lay on some big blocks of ice. But during the Civil War... Uh, embalming first started and it was started with a chemical that was highly effective at preserving uh, at preserving bodies but uh, was really a problem for um, poison Mm. and it was called arsenic (laughs) (laughs) arsenic arsenic was a very good preservative but a lousy thing to um, a lousy thing to expose people to, and certainly if the medical examiner ever wanted to take a look at a cause of death after the embalming, after arsenic, made it pretty tough to do. So it really started during the Civil War, and the purpose of that really was to bring those guys back home so that a service could take place there. You talked about the vault and its role in a cemetery. Are cemeteries a part of your business, or is that a separate operation? In most cases, it's a separate operation, and it is for us. Uh, We're not involved with a cemetery, but you will have some communities that have a funeral home and a cemetery in one location. Mm. Um, There are many big companies, multinational corporations, that uh, publicly traded that own funeral homes and cemeteries. Mm. And so there's quite a gamut. But most of the funeral homes out there right now are family-owned, are small, and uh, are not connected directly with a cemetery. Okay. Folks, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host is Jill Morabchik. Our guest today is Scott Mueller, the owner uh, and funeral director at um, uh, Mueller Memorial. Uh, we're discussing the important topic of what to know before you go, the answers to questions about death, grief, and funerals. Let's transition and talk about cremation. Um, we touched on it, but what is cremation and the process of it? What percentage of people have the full traditional burial versus being cremated? So the cremation process, everybody kind of understands the basics of it. Most people don't want to kind of see it. Yeah. 
But uh, in terms of really being honest about it, a crematory is a large is a large oven that is designed specifically for this. It is run at temperatures that are so high that it completely consumes anything that is inside of it. And so if a person were put, for instance, if a body were put inside in a wood casket, there would be no wood wood left, no mm-hmm. cinders, nothing like that. And it takes place in such a way that there is no um, there is no vapor, there is no uh, there is no escape of any um, any kind of uh, odors or any kind of um, chemicals into the air. Okay. So the crematory itself has got two chambers. There's a chamber underneath, which is the afterburner, and then there's a cha- the main chamber where the body is placed. Generally, when a cremation starts, you turn on the after chamber, the lower chamber first, to warm up the retort because there's a lot of refractory brick that's part of this. You warm it up to about 1,200 degrees. Then the body is placed in to the crematory. At that point, a flame is not visible at all to the operator. And the body is put in, and a heavy, heavy door is lowered. Once that takes place, the main chamber will start. Once that starts, about two, two and a half hours later, the body and all of its contents are reduced down to what everybody calls ashes, but what really is left are the long bones and the and the bones that cannot be consumed by the flame. Mm. And so those bones are swept out, and they are pulverized so that they can be indistinguishable, and those are the ashes that somebody receives. Mm. Now, if somebody has like a metal hip or something like that, those things are separated out. And the reason for that is because with the uh, amount of people that might scatter or do something else with them, metal hips and prosthesis have serial numbers that tie back to a person. You don't want to have that kind of show up in a lake right. yeah, or yeah. In, uh, in the river or something like that. So a lot of people will ask about that. Hmm. Are they're, they're not removed first? They are not removed first. Okay, no. all right. This is be a, very difficult to do. Uh, yeah, I would think uh, this is a morbid uh, question. But what, well, the whole conversation <laughs> can, can take what, a turn. So, yeah. so are, is that hip then returned to the family? No. What? Okay. No. So that, uh, so those metals are sent off to a uh, recycler. Okay. And it is a surgical recycler that that handles those things. Gotcha. Pacemakers need to be removed. Okay. And uh, those are removed because that can damage the uh, retort or there might be uh, mercury or or Mm -hmm. in some rare cases some nuclear materials that are part of that so we have to remove that prior to all right Hmm. um do all funeral homes have have cremation services um or is a casket an embalming is that all required i I guess i asked you a little bit about this earlier is that all required for cremation it is not most funeral homes do not have a crematory uh, because a lot of people want to be cremated at the time of their death, but very few people want a crematory in their neighborhood. And so yeah. uh, if you apply, if a funeral director applies for one, a lot of times it's kind of an uphill battle to get it approved mm-hmm. just simply because people don't understand what's taking place right. during that. So most funeral homes do not have a crematory. We don't, for instance. 
But we choose a crematory that we pass two other crematories to go to this one. Because in the state of Minnesota, the crematory, the machinery is licensed, but the operator is not. And we think that's a lousy standard. So in our case, we're licensed. Our facility is licensed. Mm-hmm. So we go to another, crema- uh, another crematory where it is a funeral home where they are licensed and the directors are licensed. So there are licensed people in charge of that transfer all the way. Because the biggest objection that people have in their head that they're afraid to ask... Yep. But it's there, and I have this conversation with everybody who chooses cremation is, hey, how do I know that the ashes I get back are the ashes of the person I love? Absolutely. It's important. Because they've all heard or read about some goofball someplace else that Hmm. didn't do the right thing. And uh, so we go the extra mile a lot of different ways. Part of it is our choice of crematory. Part of it is the directors that are in charge of it so that we're a witness to it. And then another part of it is we put a numbered stainless steel band around the uh, around uh, the wrist of each decedent that is legible afterwards. And so that number is consistent with the paperwork through everything. We want to make sure that families are absolutely assured that they never have to question this. Because they may not question it now, but in five years they may read about somebody uh, someplace else that didn't do the right thing, and now they're wondering about yeah. it. It's a really important point. Uh, so post-cremation, we all kind of know what an urn is, but what can be used for an urn, and can it be personalized just like the casket? An urn can be very personal. I'll show you how, or I'll tell you how uh, personal it is. Uh, we've used a man's ski boots. We've <laughs> used a, I, in fact, I had to get educated on this. I'm not a hunter. A hunter's muff uh, for that. We've used uh, shotgun shells, fireworks. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. My, yeah. uh, <laughs> we have used a sewing kit and toolbox. And so many times people have something in their, as part of their memorabilia that might work out. As long as it's big enough for the ashes to be contained, it's just fine with us. However, most people will choose something from the funeral home simply because they want something that is going to contain it. But you can buy a lot of different things now because people will do a lot of different things with the ashes. We have one urn that is cored from a single piece of rock salt. It's beautiful. It looks like quartz. Hmm. But you put the ashes in it. If you bury it or if you put it into water, it will completely degrade within a couple of days. Hmm. And that appeals to some people. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I don't... You know, part of what we do here is talk about policy and law and such. If I want to be cremated and then scattered across a favorite lake, uh, am I allowed to do that? Yes, you are. Yeah, I was going to ask about the law about scattering ashes. I, yes. I, I would like to have some of my ashes scattered in Wrigley Field and some scattered at Target Field. Is that is Now it? you're going to have a problem. Okay. <laughs> now you're going to have a problem because there you've got, there you've got private property. Mm-hmm. And um, the biggest issue really doesn't happen at Target or Wrigley. It happens at places like Disneyland or Disney World, where a lot of people think, oh, I want to have my ashes there because mm-hmm. I love the place. Mm-hmm. Well, that will shut down um, that area of Disney World as they do a complete cleaning for oh, that. So okay. those things are strongly prohibited there. They are prohibited in, for scattering in uh, generally in national parks, mm-hmm. in monuments, that type of thing. But generally, 
all other places are fair game. Interesting. Okay. Um, Scott, we're going to ask you to give away some uh, some trade secrets. Yes, I'm ready. All right, okay. I'm ready. I've lived a good life. It's time to let them go. <laughs> Cremation or burial. Can you summarize for our listeners what all is involved in a full burial, including, our my friend, the cost? Sure. So in a burial situation, you are going to choose a funeral home mm-hmm. who is going to charge a, what we call a service charge. And a service charge is a combination of a bunch of different charges. That's going to include the charges for the funeral director and their staff services, mm-hmm. their facilities, the automotive equipment that's needed, whether the family sees that automotive equipment or not. Sometimes there's a service car that may be used to deliver flowers or pick up death certificates or things like that. And for the facilities, whether we're going to set up at a church or a country club or we're going to do it at our funeral home, that usually makes up our service charge. Our service charge is about $7,000 for a complete for a complete service and of that is the embalming charge. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, you're going to pick out a casket, and caskets can go from the ridiculous to the sublime or either way. And so to give you an idea about what that means, uh, caskets usually start at just under $1,000, and they can go, well, they can go to $20,000. However, most people will choose something that is less than $2,500. And I always tell people, I say, the casket does the same thing regardless of what you spend on it. Yes. It isn't important about what you spend on it. In addition to that is going to be the burial vault if it's required by the cemetery. So it could be a concrete grave liner, which is, which is about $1,100, or it could be a sealed burial vault, which is going to be about $1,500. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there are going to be other things that are ancillary to it, which are going to be flowers and uh, maybe some printed items like thank you notes and prayer cards, memorial folders, that type of thing. Now, that isn't the extent of the funeral expenses. There's another category of funeral expenses called cash advanced items. These are things that are related to the funeral. Even if you did it yourself, you're still going to have these fees. You might have a fee from the church or from the clergy, a stipend from them. You're, you might have some document fees from the state of Minnesota. You might have uh, cemetery costs that are going to be part of that or transfer costs. Mm-hmm. And all of those are going to be pooled into that cash-advanced category. Most funeral homes will take care of that cash-advanced for you and make it part of the funeral bill. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do that, you, you add those things together, you're going to get, for a burial, you're going to get on the low side about $9,500 and on the average side about $1,200. i am sorry, $9,500 and on the, on the average side about $12,000. Okay. That's for a burial. That's for a burial. What about for a cremation? For a cremation can be different because there, there are lots of things that you can do there. Most people look at cremation as something that is immediate, Mm -hmm. something that uh, there is no other service or we're going to get together at a restaurant or something like that. And immediate cremations with no other services can be done by some providers by just over Mm $1,000, $1,500, something like that. We can't do that. We we don't have that kind of um, 
that kind of business. We don't have that kind of volume that allows for that type of thing. Yeah. Our, our real niche is really staying with the family and helping them because we've got a thing called the big three at our funeral home that I don't think this is a little bit of a commercial, <laughs> but it distinguishes us from anybody else. Number one, we, we renovate our facilities according to the comfort of the family. We make sure that it's relevant and it's every investment that we make in our facilities is all about how is it going to make the family comfortable and how is it going to make the guests feel like coming there and feel less like a funeral home because everybody has that experience of going into a funeral home and the furniture is old and the music's bad and this the air chairs, smells bad. Chairs are rickety. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Number two is the acute loss period. The acute loss period is a 10 to 14 days after the death. Most people don't talk about this because you don't go right from a death into grief. And I don't think there really is closure. I think it's a process. And so for the first 10 days, that's about the amount of time it takes for the brain to understand that this loss has taken place. So I'll give you an example. If my leg were to be amputated, I could look down and have visual confirmation that my leg is gone, but my brain gets these signals that my toes itch. Hmm. And it's a thing called phantom pain, which is a very mm -hmm. real deal. Mm -hmm. Now, that's how the brain deals with loss, even when it can see it. Can you imagine what happens when somebody dies? Because if you've ever gone through this, when you have, uh, when you have somebody close to you that dies, and for a couple of days afterwards, you're saying, I can't believe we're having this conversation. I can't believe we're sitting here doing this. I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the brain still trying to process that loss. And then after that, the grief sets in. So our funeral directors are trained to be able to talk about that because we want to talk about care for the family. And then our number three is Grief Compass. And Grief Compass is our own program that we've authored, and that follows the family for the year afterwards mm. to provide them just a little bit of help. So we, we provide them with really good information that's specific to where they are in their journey every week by email they are able to go to another site to get additional information on that and they've got access to an 800 toll-free number that where there's a counselor there's a licensed counselor and they can take advantage of that as much as they like interesting hmm. so what does yeah, this is actually a word that I, ha I thought I knew <laughs> but when I became the uh, the news director here at KYMN radio I had to change my pronunciation what does internment mean? It's not internment. Oh, it, I see. I, I know you were spelling yeah, it with an N. Internment, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and uh, is that different from burial? And what about ashes? What, are, what, what, are we most, what do we most commonly do with ashes? Not everyone gets their ashes spread in center field or target field. Right. right. Internment and burial are really synonymous. Okay. And um, that's, that's, internment is just a nice word to say for, uh, for burial. Uh, what you were saying before was internment yes. with an N. Totally different thing. Totally different thing. thing. Yeah. Totally different <laughs> thing. Um, and what people can do with ashes is, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure, were you asking for how many people bury the ashes? or What are the common things we do with ashes? Okay. So the common things, the most common thought that people have is we're either going to take them home or we're going to our intent is to scatter them or place them in a lake or a river mm -hmm. at some point. 
I always tell people when I'm dealing with somebody who chooses cremation, I say, what's your plan for the ashes? Mm -hmm. And they look at me like, well, we're going to just take them home. And I say, well, that's not really a plan. I don't think that's a healthy thing that people take the ashes home unless they have a plan for them once they're there. Um, otherwise, it becomes kind of the family burden or mm-hmm. joke mm-hmm. where Uncle Elmer is up in the <laughs> is up on the cabinet or in the closet there someplace. Could could my daughter have me made into like a coffee mug or something? Yeah, that's probably that's probably possible. But let me give you some more realistic things. Okay, <laughs> so you can have you can have. Uh, cremains or ashes made into stones Mm -hmm. that are very polished uh, stones. You can have them made into uh, diamonds. We've got a couple families right now that are doing that. Um, That takes quite a bit of time, but you can have them made into diamonds. You can have have them actually uh, made into a blown glass so that that keepsake could be at your at your house. Um, there are lots of different things that you can do with ashes. There's a lot of creativity that mm-hmm. comes into it. Mm-hmm. Some of it you shake your head at and you think, come on. I, I just think you know, the, the blown glass thing, that's just going to fall on the floor and shatter and someone's going to sweep me up in a dustpan. It throw and, you know, I'm going to wind up in a landfill. <laughs> some people do it with uh, jewelry, you know, where they yeah. put some ashes into the jewelry. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that personally. Yeah. I think that's a little creepy, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of. I've that. heard creepier stories than that. Scott. No, no, <laughs> you're going to hear another one right now. Okay. So we've been up to this point. We've been talking about burial and cremation. There's going to be something as news director. You're going to find out about next year that is going to come about, and it's called human composting, mm-hmm. and that's going to be the latest means of disposition for people after they die. Oh, I can I can imagine where that's going. Do we do we have to complete this conversation, or can we just roll with the, the where the, where that that ends right there? We can roll with it <laughs> okay. uh, right there if you want. And guess where it started out on the uh, west coast. Oh, I'm so sure. they're currently doing it. Now. <laughs> you know, I, God bless them. Yes. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Yes. Yeah. Oh boy, that is a Kentucky saint. <laughs> Scott, as I was prepping this weekend, my wife Chris wanted me to ask you about funeral pyres. She wants to be sent down a river on a pyre. Can you explain what a pyre is historically, if that's possible today? She has this idea in her head of a funeral and a Viking tradition. I'm going to interrupt you, and just so I can add my wife's name to this question as well. Really? Yes. Uh, my, my, wife, my wife considers herself a Viking warrior and would wow. like to have yeah. the whole Viking funeral. Well, I wouldn't want to meet your wives in a, in a dark alley <laughs> at night. <laughs> Because I think they'd win. Um, well, the whole idea of the Viking, the Viking funeral is, uh, in current days, is a myth. You're not really going to be able to do that. The state, any state, with the exception of Colorado, is going to highly regulate how a body is handled mm-hmm. and who handles it. For the reason that there is a public health concern as mm-hmm. uh, when someone dies that there's decomposition that starts to take place right away. So she's not going to get her wish. Mm. No. If she moves to Norway? She might. Okay. <laughs> she might. Yeah. All right. So at Mueller, at Mueller Memorial, um, you offer a service called, uh, in, 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 am I pronouncing this right? Interra? Interra. Interra mm-hmm. Green Bur- Burial, which I'm going to assume is not human composting. It is not. Okay. 
then what is Intera Green Burial? How is it different from the cremation process that we've discussed? And, and how long has this been around? Well, Green Burial, like a lot of things, has been around since people have started to die. Sure. Because um, when people died, there was no embalming and people were buried, put in a tomb, that type of thing. And so all we're doing is going back to that and embracing that. Because of the fact that we've got this cooler and it allows us to go out six days, there is a cohort of people out there that really wants to have something that is ecologically friendly, something that doesn't involve embalming chemicals, certainly, something that doesn't involve putting a metal casket in the ground, uh, something that doesn't involve, even in the purest sense, uh, polyester clothing that the Mm -hmm. deceased wears, that type of thing. And so we really have embraced that and come out with Interra Green Burial, and we have shades of green, as we call it, that that uh, a lot of people will choose and we're getting we're getting a surprising number of people choosing that and a lot of people who are choosing green burial are coming from a prior choice of cremation because they really thought cremation was um was ecologically friendly yeah uh, it isn't there's a lot of btus that have to be expended during that and so this is no embalming uh, generally very little service. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually we go out to the cemetery, and there are a couple of, not many, but there are a couple of uh, green burial cemeteries in the state where there are no markers. There's just wild grass there. The graves aren't dug as deep. There's no need for a burial vault. And the person is put into the ground either in a wicker carrier, in a muslin shroud in uh, a seagrass casket and all have been used as long as they are degradable and they don't have any impact on the ecology mm-hmm. interesting scott, scott you've talked a little bit about regulation you have you're a licensed funeral director yourself sounds like each state is different are there federal regulations too or do the feds just leave that to the states the extent of the federal regulation is a federal uh, trade Commission rule, okay. and that has to do with uh, consumer protection. And so each funeral home has to provide a general price list to each family prior to them making arrangements so that uh, a funeral home can't just change prices whenever they wish or uh, just before a family might walk in the door. That, ha- that rule has been in effect since about 1983. Uh, but that's the only federal regulation. Most states are pretty consistent on their uh, on their regulation of uh, who gets to be licensed, how they become licensed, and why they are, and what kind of care has to happen to the body. You're listening listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik. My co-host is Rich Larson. Our guest today is Scott Mueller owner and funeral director at Mueller Memorial, St. Paul, and White Bear Lake locations. We are discussing the important topic of what to know before you go, the answers to questions about death, grief, and funerals. Scott, regular, regular listeners to the radio program and podcast know that I'm a retired police officer. In police work, part of the job is death investigations. 
fatal accidents, suspicious deaths, homicides, suicides, natural deaths that we released. At those scenes, a common question for me was, what do I do now? If a natural death occurs in a home, what does a living relative do? Let me give you a couple other scenarios. What does a living relative do if a loved one dies, for example, after an accident in a hospital? And in the case of a homicide or suicide, the police have protocols, but then a body is eventually released from an investigation. It's that question, what do I do now? So in any one of these scenarios, what do they do? What's that first call? All right, you're going to remind me about some of these scenarios because <laughs> I'm not going to hit them all. But let's yeah. talk about the natural death. Uh, um, natural death in the home. In the home. Yep. So natural death in the home would likely be somebody who has been very ill, terminally ill, expected to die, or somebody who has been very, is aged and um, and dies there, or maybe falls and dies as a result of their fall. So there are two scenarios there, though. If somebody is on hospice care, their hospice nurse or their hospice company will have pre-registered them with the medical examiner. Now, here in Northfield, I'm not that familiar with with whether you have, I doubt that you have a medical examiner. You probably have one available to you, but probably more of a coroner situation. Yeah, I would think. Um, but it is important for the state's point of view that some somebody has overseen the circumstances of the death. Because if we go ahead with cremation, there's not a way to look at how that death might have taken place after the fact. So in a situation where death takes place at home and there's a hospice nurse or company involved, they pre-register that. And then the hospice people will call the funeral home and will come right out to the house. Okay. If there's another death, other than a hospice situation, even in a situation where a terminally ill person uh, died after a long illness, generally the police are going to respond to that. And they're going to come out, and they're going to carefully and quietly just kind of look for anything that might be a little suspect. But generally it isn't. And so they're going to clear it with either the local health authority, in our case it was medical examiner, and then they'll call us and we'll be able to come out after that. Mm -hmm. But there's always room for the cause of death to be examined after the fact. Um, if somebody falls in their house and breaks an arm or a leg um, in our county, which is Ramsey County, that definitely means they're going to go to the medical examiner's office because they want to make sure that there isn't any other bruising on the body that may have shown that this person wasn't cared for properly right. or that they were abused in that regard. Now, there are a couple other scenarios you, you described yeah. there. Okay, so a lot of people die in hospitals. Mm -hmm. What's the protocol there? So in a hospital situation, there's a, there's a very good uh, health care record there. And when a person dies, if the family isn't there, the family will be notified and they'll give, give an opportunity for them to come to the hospital, say goodbye if they wish. Then from there, the body either goes down to the hospital morgue or it will remain in the room until the funeral home comes. Okay. So we're called at all hours of the day, uh, 24 hours a day, whether it's a holiday or not. And that kind of goes back to some of our discussion about the costs, is because we have to maintain a staff, whether we do one service or 40, because 
this may happen at a very inopportune time, but mm -hmm. there's somebody who's got to be on call to be able to respond to that. But in a hospital, again, it's very much it's very much watched after. You and you folks are dedicated to that too. My cousin uh, got married uh, a few years ago. My cousin in Kentucky, and uh, she would always say, "The wedding is scheduled at two o'clock unless someone dies." Yes, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I've kind of gone beyond that. We're a little bit bigger than that, where I can uh, I can pretty much count on my schedule. But yeah. uh, but the older I get, the odd thing with me is the older I get the more impersonal demand I, I become because now I've got friends of mine who are experiencing the death mm -hmm. and they want to deal with me. And so I may get the call in the middle of the night and uh, certainly they want me to respond to it. And so it is a, uh, it is a profession that does not have regular hours to no. it. That's for sure. Well, let's go with that last scenario. Uh, police investigation, medical examiner's office. Where, did it, where does it go from there? So medical examiner will determine or at least study the cause of death. They may not determine the cause of death. And I can only speak for Ramsey and Hennepin County, which I'm most familiar with. But in our counties, if, uh, if the medical examiner is going to sign the death certificate and they're looking into the cause of death, that delays the death certificate now from two weeks to probably six mm -hmm. or seven because they're waiting for toxicology results to come back and histology and things like that that are going to absolutely confirm the cause of death. There are rare cases where the cause of death can't be, uh, can't be determined or there is a, a litigation or a, um, or a trial that is coming up in which case the body cannot be discharged to the funeral home. In a situation like that, the likely situation is where the family wants to cremate, and we can have a funeral service, but we have to bring the body back to the medical examiner, and they're going to hold on to it until that trial takes place, hmm. which could be a long time. Interesting. When I worked a death investigation, I, of course, had an investiga investigatory role, but I also had an awareness that I was at a scene where someone breathed their last, and I wanted to be respectful of that, and also compassionate to grieving loved ones. Scott, you're a funeral professional and have been for a long time. Explain your thoughts about the importance of professionalism, respect, and compassion or empathy for the dead and the grieving. When you, when you went to a house and you're responding there, I suspect there was a big part in your head as to what kind of a scene am I walking into what do I say next? Who's in control? What kind of decisions need to be made? Now, that last one, you probably know pretty well. Okay. But the th other things really uh, take a toll on you. So when somebody comes in and they're dealing with a family who has just had this happen, where they've, this has never happened to them before, because there's nothing in life, no amount of education, no amount of training, no amount of care can ever provide you with the means to deal with the first time that somebody you love doesn't breathe. Right. And you can't predict what your, uh, what your psychological ability is going to be or your ability to handle that. So somebody coming into that environment, and I find that the police are tremendously compassionate at this. And I don't know if it's something that they're taught or if it's a profile that uh, is part of being a policeman. But every scene that I've gone into, uh, 
the police are there and they have been extremely helpful to the family. And the family is looking for somebody to come in and to say, listen, we need to do these three things. Right. And um, at that point, they need somebody to help them make that decision, help them make those decisions. In our case, there are lots of decisions that have to be made. It would be bad of me to say, here's all the decisions that we have to make and throw it in front of people. I always think about what decision needs to be made now, what decision needs to be made next, and how many options does a family really need to hear? Because if I'm listening to a family right, I'm going to know that I'm not going to present them with burial options if they've already started talking cremation options. I'm not going to do that. And I know they're on guard. So there's usually somebody in the family who kind of takes over in that role of decision-making and helps them, helps guide them. But the idea of compassion in a situation like this is totally critical because that family has never gone through this before and will never experience it again. That's why each, each life is so individual and the passing that, of that life has got so much, uh, so much emotion tied to it. Mm-hmm. It really does. In your book, What to Know Before You Go, you discuss the idea that most of us are not emotionally prepared for the loss of a loved one. We in our society have not been taught how to deal with loss. You have the grief compass program does everybody grieve differently everybody does and we like to say that there's no wrong way to do it unless as long as you don't hurt yourself and others Um, because you can hurt yourself by maybe medicating it or drinking the feelings away or Mm -hmm. drugging the feelings Mm -hmm. away that type of thing but there's generally not a bad way to do it but there's no real model out there We've, we've not been taught it, and we don't want to learn about it until we have to. And even then, we don't want to learn about it. Uh, but if you have somebody that's kind of a trusted advisor that walks with you, you feel like, hey, I've got the power to, I've got the power to do this. I've got the ability to kind of walk through this. But the reason why I have a little problem with the word closure is because I don't think you ever get over grief. I think you go through it Hmm. and you figure out how grief makes you better or grief makes makes you is is a different part of your personality. Uh, I talk to families all the time that that may be really struggling. And I said, listen, I can give you a choice. I can give you a pill that completely takes away the grief, completely rids you of the grief. But it also rids you of the memory of that person or you have to deal with the grief. Nobody ever, now there isn't a pill for that, right. but nobody ever chooses that No, because that relationship is still so strong and it always will be. Oh, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about pre-planning and, yeah. and how, how, how common that is? And, 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 you know, is that something you recommend? It is something I recommend. It happens in about 30% of the deaths that we take care of where people have come in and planned some or all of their funeral uh, planning. Um, And a lot of people will do it just simply because they're getting to a certain age where they've taken care of their will, they've taken care of uh, 
some things with regards to what they want their kids to have and then they think well maybe we should just take care of this too so that the kids don't have to worry about what decisions that I would have wanted mm -hmm. to make so people will come in usually takes maybe an hour an hour and a half it's pretty easy very easy as a matter of fact and um, and at the very least we'll start a file where we'll put their wishes in there and make sure that uh, the family is aware of what they would like to do because legally I'm obligated to follow their wishes. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, and what I like to do, is I like to present them with a complete estimate of what the funeral expenses are so that they know what the funeral would be, would cost, if we were arranging it today. And then the last thing to do, which really completes it, is they can fund that amount. And if they fund it, they put it into an insurance policy. There are companies out there that specialize in funeral insurance funding, and there's a reason for that. Even if you have life insurance yourself, likely you own your own policy. If you get into a situation where you are uh, living a long life, a long good life, but you need additional care, and you're in a nursing facility, that money can disappear very quickly. And the cash value of that policy can be looked at mm -hmm. as cash on the table. Hmm. They'll make you cash that out in order to use mm -hmm. that towards the care of the person. This money put aside, it's put aside in a special way with an irrevocable assignment, means that the only purpose it can be used for is for the funeral. Now, because Minnesota is a very high consumer protection state, they also state that I can't be listed as a beneficiary, nor do I want to be. So it's any funeral home as their interest may appear so that if I go out of business or I burn down or they don't like me, they can take those plans to any other funeral home if they wish. Sure. But I think it's a good idea. When you get to a certain point or if there's an illness or something else, I think it's a very good idea to get this done. It's a re it feels like a responsible thing to do. It is. Yeah. And it's honestly, it isn't as hard. It's harder to walk in the door than it is to walk out. People yeah. are pretty relieved when they walk out. Hmm. Uh, earlier in the program, I described attending a celebration of life. My first time I went to a celebration of life where there was music and drinks and video, and it was a party. Mm -hmm. Your parents never would have imagined that, probably when they were running the funeral home, but you have changed Mueller Memorial over the years. So you are prepared to do the traditional funeral or the celebration of life, correct? I think the traditional funeral is becoming a big part of the past. Mm -hmm. I think there's not a lot traditional going forward, or, or there are new traditions that are being set, set up. And, um, and I think that more and more people do want to have something that has some kind of a happy element to it. Uh, with videos and uh, and maybe the service comprises of not a clergy person there but a but an MC mm -hmm. that gets up and introduces friends that talk about their work life or their home life or their hobbies that type of thing and the crowd gets laughing but at the same time it's not all about that it's about remembering this person's life it doesn't mean that there, there are no tears it means that people walk out of there with the idea that we really remembered them well, and I've, I just took some time away from, from my life 
to be able to spend it here, and I feel good as a result of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think tradition, in a lot of things, is becoming redefined. Yes. Scott, where can uh, our listeners learn more about uh, Mueller Memorial and, and read your excellent blog entries? And is it possible for our uh, interested listeners to get a copy of your book, What to Know Before You Go? Sure, it is. You can go to Amazon.com and search for Scott Mueller. Now, there's another Scott Mueller out there that writes computer books. That is not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you can search there for What to Know book. Um, or you can go to MuellerMemorial.com. Or you can send me an email at scott at MuellerMemorial.com, and I'll make sure that uh, that we can make it easy for you to get a book. And Mueller is M-U-E-L-L-E-R. That's correct. Okay. Uh, okay. We like to give our guests uh, the final word on the program. Uh, what are your concluding thoughts on, uh, on these things? What, what did we miss, or what would you like to add to our discussion that uh, we didn't get to? Well... The issue of the human composting is going to be an issue. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> and, that's going to, and that's going to make for a very interesting conversation. I will tell you that even though it's not legal here yet, we are helping one man who is dying mm-hmm. uh, right now, and he wants, to be, he wants to have his body composted, and we're going to help him when the time comes mm-hmm. to get his body out to Washington State for that purpose. Hmm. So that's going to be an interesting thing. The other thing is that Uh, There are things that a funeral director should do and things that a family should do and things that a family could do. So you could replace a lot of the things that a funeral director could do. If you Mm -hmm. really want to save money, you could do that. But don't do it at the the expense of having some kind of service. And what we've learned through the pandemic especially is that having that service within the first three weeks after the death is hugely important. After that, other people's obligation or feeling of obligation Mm -hmm. tends to disappear of attending that service. And so it's very important to do it within those three weeks. And then the last thing I would say is that a lot of people, especially in terms of cremation, may come in and say, well, we want to do a service, but, but Thanksgiving's coming up and the family's all coming to town or there's a wedding and we'll do it at that time. Don't do that. You should, not, you should not make it convenient for people to come. Death needs to be inconvenient. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a time where everybody stops and changes their plans and just bows to you a little bit. And, um, and mixing it with a wedding, not a good idea, no. I don't think. <laughs> just not a good idea. Too many emotions going on there. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been another great and interesting conversation. But this is where we got to end the program today. Scott Mueller, thank you for, for coming down from St. Paul to be a part of public policy this week. It's been my pleasure, gents. Thank yeah. you very much. Scott, I, I want to thank you uh, as well for being part of this program today and sharing your knowledge and experience, your empathy. I mean, it really comes through. Yes. Uh, you, you are clearly uh, thank you. Uh, a, a, a man who, 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 who understands and loves what he does, and we appreciate that. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull the uh, podcast out of uh, 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 your favorite podcast platform. 
or on the KYMN website or uh, uh, really just about anywhere you want to go find a podcast. Uh, just look for Public Policy This Week. Find our little blue capital logo. Be sure to fi- uh, join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week when Joe and I are going to talk about some issues surrounding AM radio. Have an outstanding Friday, everyone, and a great weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.